Thanks for downloading the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're joined by Dr. Robert Chimchak, a physician and radiologist and also a prominent art collector based in Berkeley, California. Robert's been on the board of the Berkeley Art Museum for several years and is currently the chair of the Collections Committee. In the past, he was on the board of the San Francisco Art Institute and chair of the board at New Langton Arts, an artist space. Robert's here to give us a sense of the current art world and art market from a collector's perspective. Robert, thanks so much for speaking with us. Great to be here. First, tell us a little bit about your history as a collector and the types of art you collect. A lot of the, the history that I have gone through in collecting is a bit of a serendipitous history. I didn't come at collecting directly, although I'm one of those people who was born collector and started with stamps when I was five years old. But my parents were history teachers, and I come at this from history, from the history side of things. And I studied art history in college, although not contemporary art, but medieval and Renaissance art. Somewhere along the end of the 60s, a little accident happened to me in that I was down in, uh, at the flea market where I was in school in Boston, and I found a daguerreotype, an old photograph that just talked to me out of the past, and I bought it and thought about it. And the next thing I know, I was searching flea markets for photographs, because in those days, there weren't any photography galleries, really. And I started encountering people who were interested in photography, and I realized, oh, you know what? I'm a photography collector. I put that on hold a little bit, although I became a fanatic about the daguerreotype and collecting them. I moved out to San Francisco in the early 70s, and once I got there, I ran into people who were really interested in photography because it was a center for photography in those days. And I got a mentor who introduced me to the people, both the photographers, both old and new and collectors of photography, which at that time was a very person-to-person thing since there were no galleries. But I got deeply involved in it, and I met many of these artists. And uh, I even curated my first photography show at one of the very first photography galleries in San Francisco called called, uh, Focus Gallery in 1976 of a photographer whose work I rediscovered named Willard Warden. But I... So I want to go through some third, sort of these kind of key things that happened to me in a way because there's some of them were kind of accidents. I ran into a photographer named Richard Mizrak who started a little forum about photography in the studio. So I ran into and met almost all of the important photographers at that time. And I began moving forward from the 19th century to the 20th century and collecting photography. One of the coolest things that happened to me in collecting photography was towards the end of the 90s, I went to a reception for the new curator at SF MoMA, Van Darren Koch, and was introduced by a friend of mine there to a photographer named Bill Owens, who's very famous for his work on suburbia. And he introduced me to his friend a woman named Marion Brenner, who wound up being my wife. So I met wow. Bill and Marion the same, the, same, <laughs> the same day. And because I was friends with Marion and Bill needed help, I wound up running Bill's photo archives. 
uh, which I still sort of do in a way, and uh, arrange shows and edit books for Bill. So I think one of the things that is great about being a collector is that you know you can do anything you want if you feel you can do it. And I think a lot of that has guided me through a lot of what I've done over the years. Anyway, uh, my photography collecting, I think, culminated in a show of my daguerreotype collection at the De Young Museum called The Power of Light in 1986 with a little book that was associated that I helped edit. I'm still very interested in photography, of course, and I still collect it, but it's, it's not the main focus. In the early 80s, I, by accident, uh, encountered uh, some artists who were friends with the photographers. And uh, a funny thing happened. I was at a, I was having a New Year's Eve party in, in the early 80s, 1981, as a matter of fact. And one of the artists says, hey, you know, why don't you flip paintings? So I said, well, you know, they're just from museums. So he says, no, you can come to my studio tomorrow and buy one. So I went to the studio the next day, January 1st, and bought one of his paintings. And that uh, was the start of everything. Because when I, it just changed my whole outlook on things. So at that point, I, you know, I didn't know what to, what to do. I really wasn't that knowledgeable about contemporary art, but I had a fondness for uh, photorealism, kind of thinking of it in terms of, wow, these are artists who can, who really want to make big photographs, but you can't make big photographs. So they're making big photo like paintings. And I collected a little of that, and uh, there were a lot of artists in the in the Bay Area who were photorealists, like Robert Bechtel, whose work I collected along with Chuck Close. And um, I learned from all of these artists that I could talk with them and find out who they admired, and that's one of the principles that sort of governed my collecting all of these years, to talk with the artists, find out who they liked, uh, if I hear it over and over again from them, to pursue that. I also started looking at other galleries, looking at other artists, looking at other types of art. I briefly went through a phase looking at Bay Area art only. That didn't last very long. But one of the key events in my collecting was encountering Edgar Shea's work. The funny thing about it was that I encountered it in answering an advertisement in the classified ad of the local newspaper where somebody was selling some work they'd acquired when they were at Davis. And it turns out that they had a group of Edward Shea ribbon drawings that I hadn't, that I hadn't been aware of. And I fell in love with them, probably for the wrong reason, for the fact that they were so beautifully made, kind of photorealistic in a way. But once I started, I, I managed to acquire them from this, this fellow. And once I had them, I started realizing what an amazing thing they were about these words, how they were so timeless. They would change from, you know, every generation could change the, the meaning of them and to do what they wanted with it. So I went down the line of... Uh, of uh, conceptual art. And there were people who were very influential on me, like Ong Kawara, who I started looking at as somebody who was so optimistic that you got up every day and you just tried to make something and had that opportunity once in a lifetime. Or 
somebody like Salouette who made things that were so simple and so logical, yet so amazing, beautiful, and timeless. I became very interested in visual poetry, uh, works with repetitions in them, and works that really could take a step out of time and you'd always come back in there. There were other things that influenced me a lot. Uh, I got interested in several, uh, a group of younger artists who were conceptual in nature. And a lot of that came out of the AIDS epidemic in the early 90s. There were a group of what I considered new art to cover artists like Jim Hodges, um, Jack Pearson, and some others who were making very urgent things and very simple out of very simple, but out of very simple materials, but also things that were very personal. And those personal things spoke to me in many ways. There was a show that Larry Render did at the Berkeley Art Museum called In a Different Light. And I had the opportunity to meet a lot of the artists who were involved with it and were involved with the reactions to the AIDS epidemic. And it really moved me. Another seminal moment in my collecting was my introduction to Bruce Conner. I have to say that Bruce Conner is probably the greatest artist that I will ever meet and know personally, who was a really good friend. And I met him by accident because another artist I knew said, oh, I would would like his work. And I met him in the the 80s and we became very good friends. He's the artist whose work I've collected in greatest depth. I have 31 works by Bruce, and I'm very happy to have every last one of them. And I, I think that uh, as part of my collecting, I, I feel like I've, I'm happy to have a large number of works by a smaller number of artists who I really appreciate. And I think that's kind of become somewhat of a mantra for me to collect their artists throughout their lifetime if possible. Uh, somebody like Jim Hodges is, is somebody whose work I've collected for a long time. There are many examples and um, there are many others. I've worked very hard to, to listen to people, gallerists, uh, artists, curators, collectors. I'll take advice anywhere. And to hear about the young artists, it's gotten very important to do that. And, I'm not afraid to to find artists who fit into the things that I really love. Um, and buy what I you know, at the very beginning, and I really feel that it's great to support these young artists because that's when it really counts. So I've gotten from here to there. I think a lot of the the things that I love really reflect those very first daguerreotypes that I acquired. I collect portraits still. But I love the conceptual works as well, which have kind of the same timelessness as the gear types have. And I think that that's probably the route I'm going to take still and probably forever. What are a couple of pieces of advice you can offer to beginning collectors that you wish you had maybe received when you first started collecting? Well, some of them are a little obvious. Um, I I think that... It really, really helps to have some education and not just jump in and buy the first thing that you see. I, I try to help others become collectors. And, and what I find is that 
be often not ready or able to look at really good artworks because they just don't have the, the knowledge of what's been made in the past so that you, you know, you, you see something that looks pretty good, but you don't realize that it's, that it's already been done in a way. So I, what I really would recommend is, is get every possible uh, advantage you can, read books, go to shows, go to every museum show, go to alternative spaces, and try to meet artists and talk to the artists. I mean, you think if I, I'm a doctor, so if, if somebody was going to, you know, ask me about who to go to, to uh, see as a doctor, I'd be able to give them good advice because I know how the doctors are. So uh, it's the same idea with an artist. I mean, if I asked artists what their thoughts are about art and who they admire, I think it's pretty educational. So I would advise people to try to get to know artists. I know it's not so easy anymore as it once was. Um, I would also try to tell people don't don't have, don't get a, a thousand things. Just pick a few things that are really wonderful. Stretch a little bit to get the best possible thing that you can. Uh, you know, I, I think if you're into it long enough, you'll get plenty of art. Um, and you can't, you, you can't regret um, not getting certain things. I mean, you're not going to be able to get everything. I would suggest to people, don't try to buy what everybody else wants. You're never going to do very well, especially in the beginning because nobody really knows who you are. And uh, I guess that's why people use art advisors sometimes. But I think it's so much more fun to do it yourself and to, you know, to really get something that you actually love. But wait until you understand a little bit more about yourself and the art that's being made. And I suppose that one thing I would say is um, don't sell things <laughs> um, if, unless you just really just can't stand them anymore for some reason. But because it's just um, you're a custodian for the art objects you buy, and I feel like you're duty is, is to guard them and help the artists in the long run. So I think there's too much selling of art going on right now, which worries me. Yeah. Let's talk about the art market. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are great. Uh, let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the art market. I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, from a collector's perspective, what you make of the art market at the moment. Do you feel like, are you, are you active on the primary market as well as at on the secondary market, at auctions, what do you, what's your view kind of on where things are at the moment? Well, for, for me, I've been collecting for nearly 50 years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, collecting contemporary art avidly for at least 35. Um, this is the most depressing time for me in the art world since I've been collecting. Um, I think things changed about seven, eight years ago, partly due to the advent of the internet and all of this and the proliferation of art fairs and uh, partly with the idea during the recession that art is somehow a better investment, which I don't, I, you know, which I, I understand, but 
I don't feel should be the primary thing in, in the art world. So I think that the, the pace of the art world is accelerated so fast, it's almost impossible to keep up with it. I mean, it used to be you, you go, went to the galleries, you, you, know, you earned your credibility in a way by getting out there in person and seeing the art. I'm one of those people that still believes that you need to, you shouldn't be buying an artwork you've never seen. Unless maybe on occasion you you know you really know the artist's work very well, and I think that's not the case in most people's situation. And I feel that the you know the art market is being manipulated currently. I'm very worried about it. The this this the super speculation, and uh, there's um, all these young artists who you know people are treating as if. You know, if you look at it from a business sense, that they're, they're, that they're the artist is as an IPO. You know, they're trying to get in, they're trying to buy up the work, they're trying to immediately flip it over. I just think that's, that's so bad for the artist. I mean, I, I, it's not a new phenomenon that artists get hot and everybody wants the artist's work. But there's something new and different about the way it's being done now. It's done more... By uh, it's almost it's done. This seems to be somewhat of a commoditization of the, of the art art world. That it's a small fraction of it. I'm not. I don't want to paint the art world as a negative thing because I love it. But I think that this aspect of it just just is disappointing to me to me personally. Um, whenever I give a talk to um, a group of people who are interested in hearing me talk about collecting. Everybody talks about the emerging hot artists, but nobody hardly ever talks about the what I refer to as the submerging artist. You know, the guy who's, or the woman who's hot for a one year and two years. Everybody wants this particular body of work they made, and then, you know, the price zooms up, and nobody wants it anymore, and the artist is stuck. And the collector is also stuck as well. So uh, I find it somewhat disappointing uh, that uh, the way the way it's going on, and you know, I, I find it also it, it's harder to uh, get access to the artists. The dealers are very uh, guarded. I mean, not particularly that they're not you know that they're so worried that I'm going to do something because I wouldn't buy you know art from an artist that. You know, instead of the dealer, I would always buy it from the dealer because that's the right thing to do. But sometimes you really want to know the artist's work. And I think that artists, that dealers, to some extent, keep the artists away from the people who love their work at this time. So I find that a little, a little distressing because, um, you know, I just feel that's so important. I mean, I, I think about, I know about 70% of the artists whose work I collect personally. And some of them have been my very, very close friends over the years. You can't be close friends with everybody, but it's, but it's, it's, it's disappointing when you can't maintain those kinds of relationships. In terms of the art market now, do you think there are any opportunities that you've identified for whether it's new collectors or existing collectors for certain artists or areas uh, of the art market that... Um, aren't getting the attention that it deserves. I think I think most of the opportunities now are in two places. 
you know, one, if you can get yourself really involved in the art world and you, you can come across artists, young artists that you love before they're, the, then any of the hype gets to them, so to speak. You know, and that just isn't easy. It takes a lot of time. But if you can do it, you know, go to the, go to the art schools, go to the uh, grad student programs, graduation programs, things like that. I think there's opportunities to just to see artists at the beginning of their careers. I mean, one piece of advice I would give collectors now, young collectors now, beginning collectors, is if you do find an artist that you really love that's in your uh, ability to acquire it, I would not just acquire one work, but try to buy, uh, acquire a broad spectrum of the works. The other, you know, I mean, a lot of times I, I, uh, I you know, I've bought, I've tried to follow artists' careers throughout their lives. It's not so possible anymore. But, uh, like, for instance, with Bruce, I mean, I, I own 31 works of Bruce's, you know, that were bought over many, many years. And other other artists, there are many artists who I have 10 works, you know, that sort of thing. I think that's really important to continue to support the artists. So that's one way you can you can acquire works. You can tell that I relate more to the aesthetic of the moguls than <laughs> probably some of the more modern collectors. But the second place is at auction. I think it's our secondary market. I've done some really wonderful things. On, on not so much sometimes at the you know the day auctions or the or some of the auctions of the smaller auction houses. Um, there are lots of overlooked works if you're just not pursuing the things that, you know that are you know that are um, that are in big demand. For instance, I've I've been acquiring work by uh, Alan Sarrett. You know, and I've been able to get wonderful pieces you know, from relatively obscure auctions and this and that. And uh, I recently bought a work from a secondary dealer by an artist named David Nabros, who's certainly not uh, necessarily in house. And then was a very important artist in the 60s. And his work was beautiful, beloved by um, Judd. And those are the types of opportunities. If you, if you, the more you learn, the more you can spot opportunities like that. Some of these, uh, some of these auctions have wonderful works that, that, that you know, you can be acquired relatively easily. You can make a beautiful collection from them, uh, and and probably a, a, sometimes a more interesting collection than if you have the same things everybody else has. So and I think that's that's you know I think that. I would advise young collectors to essentially try to be, make a collection that's personal, that's your collection. So when somebody walks in and sees it, they say, wow, I haven't seen that. You know, that is a great thing that I haven't seen it before. So um, I just think that there are opportunities out there. I think there really are good opportunities. And you know, we go through cycles. Art may be very popular, now it might not be so popular in five years. The time to—it's like anything else. The time to really focus on acquiring things is when times are probably tough and people are finding things hard to sell. And uh, and that will come and go. I mean, it'll be good. It'll be bad. You know, we, you know, it's 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 somewhat predictable. But I guess that's the business that. Uh, 
a lot of people are, are in, including our tactic in a way, trying to trying to show what they're feeling for what's the future of certain markets. And uh, I think that you you need to I think that's a very useful tool, you know, to, that our the useful idea that our tactic has, uh, to try to get some idea of what the future holds. You referenced how when you were first started collecting, you would go to New York twice a month to see shows. I'm curious, to what extent do you use technology um, to enhance your ability to collect and learn more about artists and art? Well, I definitely use it, and you can't help it, and it's good. I mean, I, you know, when I'm interested in, in artists' work, I, you know, first of all, I want to know what, what is available, what can you get? So you can go, I can go online and, you know, see, find out the 10 dealers that are showing that artist's work. Uh, so, you know, I can know right away what kinds of works are available. And uh, sometimes I can get some, you know, I mean, from, from places like Artnet or one of the price database things, I can get some idea of, you know, what the things might go for. So I think that's extremely useful. But I still, you know, and uh, I think you can do research. The main thing that I buy on online is not contemporary art, but um, I buy uh, 19th century photographs because, you know, I, I know so much about them. I can get a good feel for for them, and they're not, they're not, we're not talking about things that are very expensive. So I can buy those things on eBay or whatever and have a lot of fun. But I, I, I still I still don't feel comfortable, you know, spending a large sum of money on an artwork I've never seen. And you've been you're based on the West Coast. You've lived there for a long time. How do you and you've been involved in the contemporary art scene there for a long time. How do you see the scene there versus New York? And to what extent have you witnessed the West Coast scene evolve and develop? You know, I'm talking about the uh, West Coast art scene versus New York. Uh, you can talk on uh, two levels. One is the aesthetic level and the differences in that, and one is sort of the organizational level. So I want to mention uh, um, both of those a little bit. New York has been kind of the center of the art world in the United States for a fairly long time and has much has a much longer history than uh, art in California, which overall spans less than 200 years. When I think of art made in the West, especially in California, you have to think of two things. You think of light and open space. And I think that that tradition goes way back to the 19th century with people even like Carlton Watkins uh, and comes right up to the present and is manifested in everything up to the land artists. Also, when I think of the West Coast versus New York, I think of uh, experimental media. Photography was really uh, an art that was, to some extent, uh, developed in its most modern sense out in California. The very first photography school was at the Art Institute and one of the second, the one of the next uh, oldest was at the UCLA. 
But the artists in this part of the country have used odd media. They've used clay. They've used. Uh, they've been pioneers in video art and other other media that are maybe not as ordinary. So that's I think is a distinction between east and west. Now. I think you can divide the California art into basically the San Francisco and the LA camps. And I'm much more experienced with San Francisco having lived here for a long time. I think of sort of uh, San Francisco as kind of eccentric and entrepreneurial in a way. I mean, manifesting now in, in the business in Silicon Valley, whereas I think of LA more as the Hollywood cool. And these have been manifested in different ways. If you think about it, a lot of artists after the war migrated to the West Coast from other places like the Midwest. And if you look at examples, the perfect example for LA is Ed Bruchet, and the perfect example for San Francisco is Bruce Connor both Midwesterners. And uh, and I think a lot of the art that's come down in both places are kind of related to, to some of those initial traditions, the beat generation, the uh, mission school, a lot of things that eventually kind of self-germinated in San Francisco um, are a little different from what happened in, in L.A., where it was supported, where the art was supported more by uh, organizations like the, the Ferris Gallery and where there was much more of an established museum and gallery scene initially, although there was a very good gallery scene in San Francisco at the same time along Fillmore Street. At any rate, uh, you know, going, getting to the current and more current days, I think that... Uh, while LA may have had a bit of a head start as far as the museums and galleries and even collectors, I think that San Francisco is certainly catching up. Right now we have here, here in San Francisco and in LA a real renaissance of museums. I'm on the board of the Berkeley Art Museum and we're opening in about two weeks a fabulous new museum designed by Dillard's Video and Renfro that I think will make a big difference in the Bay Area. SF MoMA is also opening a wonderful new museum. It's not been that long since the De Young Museum has, uh, oh, oh, Young Museum opened a new uh, facility and all the other museums are thriving. I mean, in LA also, the Broad and several other great institutions are, are continuing to thrive. The art schools in LA have been more active, I think, in producing forerunners of the art recently. But I think the art schools in San Francisco are catching up. I think the California College of the Arts and SFAI and the Art Institute are instituting really interesting programs and are developing. And, and while San Francisco was a, 
I think uh, I've been ahead in artist spaces at one point. I think some of this has transferred into um, other organizations, such as, uh, the, for instance, the Cadiz organization that we have here in San Francisco. One problem in every city, and especially in San Francisco, is where can artists stay and how can they stay in the city and create a vital part of the city and how can the galleries stay? One problem in San Francisco right now is the cost of real estate. And a lot of artists and galleries are being forced out of the habitual location they've been in. It's a real problem. LA has more space in the downtown area and can probably deal with this a little bit better. But I'm very hopeful that some things are going on right now. For instance, we have uh, a project called the, the uh, Minnesota Street Projects where uh, there is going to be a space where galleries and some artists can work and will be a destination at a reasonable price. And I'm hoping that these types of things will keep people here and will develop collectors. I think that the LA has a better collector base at the moment, for not for older art, but for young art. But there are lots of interesting young galleries in San Francisco. I can't mention all of them, but Jessica Silverman and Alton Siegel, Ratio 3, uh, et al., SFAQ is a great great magazine and gallery. So I've, I've got a lot of high hopes for what's going on, uh, that everything will eventually find its space once it's sort of regathered from the diaspora that's being caused by some of these other problems. Robert, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and talking with us about your progression as a collector giving advice to new collectors, and sharing your perspective on the art market. We really appreciate talking to you and hearing from you. You're welcome.